want to get out your uh, sermon outline. It says, the Spirit of Christ on it. At a difficult time this morning trying to decide whether I should be wearing my New England Patriots tie for their big game today. But instead I decided to wear the, uh, the world champion Boston Red Sox tie. So it was tough, tough decision, you know, but that's why I get paid the big bucks. Make the hard decisions. Red Sox, Patriots, it's a good time to be from Boston. So there have been a lot of times it wasn't so good, so I'll enjoy the times that it is. We, uh, we're in John 16 now. And uh, we'll be starting at verse 4 and reading through verse 15. We're in the upper room discourse of Jesus talking to his disciples. And much has gone on. He's finished most of his ministry. He has met with them. And uh, he has pointed out his betrayer, Judas, who has left. They've had the Last Supper. Uh, it's been a very intense time. And some ways, these chapters, 14, 15, 16, and 17, are in some ways his last will and testament. I wouldn't put it that way, but it, the disciples would see it that way. They're not quite sure he's coming back yet. They don't know what's going on. And these are the last things, the, the important things that Jesus has for his disciples. Um, and so we need to keep that in mind as we read it, that this isn't just... Uh, another good thing that Jesus said. But this is something that he felt was important for his disciples to know. John 16, starting at verse 4. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have another passage of your word. We know it's important. We know we should hear it, listen to it, apply it. And so we ask this morning that your spirit would work amongst us, that we would hear your word as we prepare to come to your table, 
that you might speak to each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I started to put in this opening illustration, and it's about a well, a water well and a pump. And I realized we probably have a lot of people here who've never seen an old-fashioned water well with a pump. So how many of you are familiar with what a pump for a well actually looks like? Okay, most of you, or at least some, are not willing to admit. They, uh... Well, the pump has a long metal arm which you move up and down, and it creates suction in the pipes coming from the well, and it draws the water up where it flows uh, out of a spigot into your water bucket or water jar, whatever you're collecting the water with. They used to be very common in this country, but you hardly ever see them anymore. Most people don't have wells, and those that do normally have electric pumps now. So uh, I knew because my grandfather had a, a camp on a lake and it had a pump and It was always our job to go out and prime the pump in the morning. And uh, so you had to use the old-fashioned pump and get it primed before the electric pump would kick in and take over. This was not one of my favorite jobs. I thought we were going to the camp to go fishing and swimming, and somehow I got to prime the pump. But I need you to keep that picture of an old-fashioned hand pump for a water well in your mind as you listen to the story. Because it won't make sense if you don't have that picture of the pump. A.J. Gordon was a great preacher. Gordon College, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, both named for him. And, but he was well-known as a great storyteller. And one time he was talking the story about visiting some friends out in the country. And uh, he was walking, went out for a walk. He's walking in the countryside. And he looked across the field at a farmhouse uh, out there. And there beside the house was what looked like a man pumping furiously at one of those old hand pumps. And as A.J. Gordon watched, the man continued to pump at a tremendous rate, never slowing down, never speeding up. He just kept going and going. He seemed absolutely tireless pumping on and on, up and down, without ever slowing down in the slightest, much less stopping. And he thought it was truly a remarkable sight. The guy just pumping, not stopping, and he just stood there and watched him. He said, surely he's going to get tired, got to take a break, get a drink of water or something. But he kept going and going. So he started to walk towards the man. And as he got closer, he realized that it wasn't a man at the pump. It was a wooden figure painted to look like a man. And the arm that was pumping uh, so rapidly was hinged at the elbow and the hand was wired to the pump handle. And the water is pouring forth and it actually went into like a trough, but not because the figure was pumping it. So he realized it was an artesian well. An artesian well is where the water table is higher than the well, which ensures that uh, the water pressure will constantly force water into the well. And because this was an artesian well with a constant water pressure, it meant that in reality, the water was pumping the man. 
in the same way. When we look out and we see a man or a woman working for God, producing positive, life-changing results, we need to recognize that that is the Holy Spirit working through him and working through her and not that person's own efforts. Instead of that person, in a sense, working God for good, it's God working that person, working through that person. It's not the person's own efforts that are giving the results. All the person has to do, all you have to do, is keep your hand on the handle. The handle, of course, uh, being the Holy Spirit. And in verse 7 of this morning's passage, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. The word advantage comes from a Greek word, uh, symphiere, which means to be profitable. It's hard to believe that Jesus' absence could be profitable for the disciples or for us. But it's true. Why? Because Jesus said he would send along the helper, the counselor, the comforter in his place, and that would be to our advantage. As long as Jesus was on the earth in his physical body, he could only be in one place at a time. But the Holy Spirit can strengthen each of us at the same time, wherever we are, because he works from within. In the innermost recesses of your life, of your heart. The Holy Spirit can bring peace to replace panic, faith to replace fear. So this morning we're going to look at this passage and see how and why having the Holy Spirit come is to our advantage. We start by seeing first the Holy Spirit counsels us. The Holy Spirit counsels us. Verses 4 through 7. I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He is our counselor. He is our advocate, our family lawyer, who is always present with advice, power, and strength so that we're able to continue in the Christian life. And as our counselor, he shows us the truth. And we're energized by the truth. For example, look what happened to the disciples when the Holy Spirit came to them. Remember, Jesus is saying this in the upper room. It's shortly after the Last Supper. Soon he's going to be uh, captured, arrested, and taken off to be crucified. It's a dark night. And in a few short hours, the disciples' behavior is going to be so despicable that a believer named John Mark, <coughs> excuse me, would describe it this way, Mark 14, and they all left him and fled. 
It's normally not what we put down in the description of a disciple. How would you describe a disciple? They all left him and fled. Not what my dictionary says. And yet, just a few weeks later, once the Holy Spirit has been poured out on these very same disciples, and they would face open hostility with courageous joy, triumphant faith, prompting Luke to write in Acts 4, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Mm. Excuse me. I got a throat lozenge over here somewhere. <laughs> That's great stuff. I used to just unscrew it and drink it, but everybody was too grossed out by that. So what happened? We move in three weeks from they left him and fled to they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So apparently here in John 16, Jesus is not exaggerating. It is to the disciples' advantage that he goes away. And as our counselor, the Holy Spirit not only works for our good, but he empowers us for good works. Throughout the first few chapters of the book of Acts, you can see how the Holy Spirit empowered the disciples to do amazing things. They convicted the world of its sin. They preached boldly in the face of persecution. They led many people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They exhibited not only a new character to the world around them, but also a new conduct. And this new conduct of faithful Christian living was so radical to the world that it stood out against the backdrop of paganism and idolatry. These disciples became different. And everybody knew it. As our counselor, the Holy Spirit is not only present with us all the time, but he encourages us by his presence. The movement that Jesus founded is not dependent upon human effort. It's not based on uh, our education or our potential or our planning. But it's God's outstretched hand at work through the person of Jesus Christ who continually abides in the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, if you've personally received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God is at work in your life through his Holy Spirit, energizing your faith, empowering you to be able to do his will, and encouraging you by his constant presence. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. And yet, like a good counselor, the Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. 
It's easy to look at that and say, oh, well, that's all good. But let's look at it and make it personal. Let's look how the Holy Spirit does this with us. Because we don't have any real problems when we say he convicts those people out there. You know, it's a little bit more difficult when we, you know, start talking about me. First, when the text says that the Holy Spirit convicts, it's not talking about a judge finding us guilty and sentencing us. We're sinners. We've already been found guilty. We can only escape our deserved punishment by seeking God's mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. However, here the passage is talking about exposing and confronting us with three realities, our sin, our righteousness, our judgment. And the Holy Spirit drives home personal conviction in our hearts and minds, getting us to acknowledge our personal guilt in order to lead us to repentance and turn us back to God. And we see first we're convicted in regard to sin so that we'll seek mercy, enabling us to live in faith. When we act in ignorance and unbelief, it only ensures we won't receive the life that's abundantly promised in Scripture. The Holy Spirit presses home our sin in regard to our lack of faith, our failure to believe, our seeming inability to act as Christians in accordance with our claim to be Christians. Now, this convicting work of the Holy Spirit is precious. It's designed to bring men and women to not only recognize their sin, but to recognize their need and to turn away from the world towards Christ as the only one who can forgive that sin and meet that need. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, then by recognizing it, we're able to come to Christ, seek his mercy, which enables us to live in faith. Second, he says, convicted in regard to righteousness, so that we'll seek mercy, enabling us to live in godliness. We tend to have a relative view of righteousness, meaning that we generally perceive God's righteousness and man's righteousness as merely different levels of the same thing. Something along the lines of God being in the major leagues of righteousness, well, we're still somewhere down in the minor leagues of righteousness. And we know how to play the game. We're just not as good at it as he is. But this is so unlike the righteousness that Christ brings. He said in Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. How discouraging is that? For as much as we belittle the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the true spiritual athletes of their day. No one measured up to them. And Jesus says our righteousness has to exceed theirs. Not only that, but a few verses later in Matthew 5, 48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Good luck with that. Now we know our righteousness will never be good enough. And that's what God wants. See, the only righteousness that he'll accept is the righteousness of Christ. 
And set apart from Christ, our righteousness will never measure up, no matter how hard we try. And that's why we need to be convicted of righteousness. So we'll stop trying to be accepted on the basis of our own righteousness and realize that God is only going to accept us on the basis of Christ's righteousness. When you come down this aisle this morning and come to these tables, one of the things you're doing is giving up your own righteousness and your own efforts and accepting Christ's righteousness. Romans 10, verses 3 and 4 says, For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Rich talked about that in Sunday school this morning. I mean, if you're not willing to accept Christ's righteousness, your righteousness is all you got. And now I'm saying, and it's not good enough. So you're in trouble. We need to get the, the mindset of the Apostle Paul. Certainly, he had pretty decent righteousness, I think. I mean, he did a lot of good stuff. Did some bad stuff, too. Killed Stephen. That wasn't so good. We planted a whole bunch of churches, you know, went to jail, did all these cool things in Acts. So he's a sort of on the good guy, lots of righteousness list. And yet he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the unsurpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So how are you doing next to the Apostle Paul? Your righteousness right up there next to Paul, maybe just a step behind. Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own. That doesn't work. Titus 3, 5 says, it's talking about Jesus. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And when we realize that, when we're willing truly to move from our own righteousness to Christ's righteousness, then we'll seek God's mercy enabling us to live in godliness, a godliness produced by him working through his spirit in our lives. And third, we see we're convicted in regard to judgment so that we'll seek mercy, enabling us to live in freedom. And judgment's one of these words that has numerous meanings in the Bible. It's used a number of different ways. I just want to look at it a couple ways, although I think it's much broader than that. Just there isn't enough time to deal with all of the ways it's used. The Holy Spirit not only criticizes that judgment which rejects Jesus, but the Holy Spirit convicts us of all false judgment. The world is wrong in its assessment of spiritual things, and therefore 
fundamentally wrong in its assessment of Jesus and his teaching and his work. And that's why Jesus said back in John 7, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. In contrast to our faulty judging, it's easy to see that Jesus' judgment is always just and right. See, it's only when we come to accept the truth of Jesus Christ, who he was and what he did and what he said, will we really be free from the tyranny of false judgment. False judgments that we make and the false judgments that we accept. And Jesus said in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When we're convicted in regard to judgment, then we'll seek God's mercy so we'll know the truth and be able to live in freedom. The Holy Spirit counsels us. He convicts us. And then finally, he convinces us. Verse 12, the Holy Spirit convinces us. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This passage says that the Holy Spirit, verse 13, is the spirit of truth, and he will guide us into all truth. I want to focus on that. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand God's word, believe God's word, obey God's word. He convinces the Christian that the Christian life needs to be lived in accordance with what God's word says. And if we as Christians are going to make God's word an effective part of our life, then we need to understand it, believe it, and obey it on a regular basis. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, Now we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is why the Westminster Confession of Faith, what we're learning in Sunday school, our denomination's doctrinal standard. It says, and right in chapter 1, the very beginning, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of God's Word is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. J.I. Packer likens the uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit, as the Lord Jesus explains it here, to a floodlight that you might find in downtown Washington illuminating some of the beautiful historical buildings. You know, the the Jefferson Memorial or uh, uh, Lincoln or Washington, the great monuments, the great buildings of the Smithsonian, the Capitol, the White House. And they all have floodlights on them at night to illuminate them. And J.I. Packer writes, I remember walking to church one evening in the winter, and I was going to preach on these words, He shall glorify me. And as I walked up, I saw the building floodlit. As I turned the corner, 
and realized this was the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. So the Holy Spirit's not telling us to look at Him. He's telling us to look at Christ, to come to Christ, to believe in Christ, to follow Christ. And therefore, what should be the result in our lives when the Holy Spirit counsels us and the Holy Spirit convicts us and the Holy Spirit convinces us? What difference does it make? What should happen to us? Well, if the Holy Spirit is uh, actually and actively at work in our lives, then we should be undergoing a process of change. It may be startlingly uh, quick change, But more likely and more common is that change in our life is slow and steady, but unrelenting. And that process of change starts when God's presence comes down. God's presence. You see, we're not yet what we're going to be. We're not yet what we're going to be. God begins to transform us when the Holy Spirit makes his presence known in our lives. The Holy Spirit is to our advantage because he counsels us, giving us energy and encouragement for God's work. He convicts us of our sin, our righteousness, our false judgments, and he convinces us of the truth and authority of God's word for everyday life. And Christ has something in mind for us that goes far beyond what we can ask or imagine. And when God's presence in the person of the Holy Spirit enters our life, when God's presence comes down, then God's power comes home. God's power comes home. You see, we're not yet what we ought to be. We're not yet what we ought to be. Our attitudes, our relationships often smack more of the world than of Christ. And that's another reason why the Holy Spirit is to our advantage. Because the Holy Spirit's power comes home in our hearts by helping us to understand, believe, and obey God's word. We receive his power to do those things he wants us to do, to say those things he wants us to say, and to love and accept those people he wants us to love and accept. And we learn to put into daily practice the words of Galatians Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And once the Holy Spirit is in our lives and gives us the power to live in accordance to the faith we profess, then part of this change process is that God's purity comes through. God's purity comes through. You see, we're not what we used to be. We're not what we used to be. Thank God for that. However briefly we've walked with Christ, each of us can see the changes that his spirit has produced in us. Every Christian is in the remodeling business, but we're not do-it-yourselfers. It's Christ at work within us, uh, refurbishing the interior of our lives, smoothing out the rough edges on the outside. 
maybe smoothing them out with a chisel and a sledgehammer, but he's smoothing out the rough edges. The Holy Spirit is to our advantage because he uses God's word as the means by which God speaks to Christians, cleansing their hearts, changing their minds, feeding their souls. And as the Holy Spirit's convicting power works in our lives, then we're truly humbled because we realize that living with our sin and without God is intolerable. And the forgiveness of sins becomes the most precious truth in the creed. I think we're going to say that later on. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Don't just say it. It's not just a routine thing in the creed that some early church father saw. Well, that'd be a good thing to say. Say it like you really believe it, like it's good news. And finally, the most visible part of this change process happens when God's people come alive. When God's people come alive. When the Holy Spirit is active in your heart, changing your life, then you can't help but show the fruit of the Spirit in your life. When God's people are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then the world will notice the difference. And when God's people are overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, then God's people come alive, and God's people realize that a better church begins with each one of us. You want a relational church? Then you need to say to yourself, a better church begins with me. You can begin to build relationships in church. You, one Christian who knows the importance of love and acceptance, can look for people who are as hungry as you are for fellowship and begin to love them the way Christ loved you. You want a more hospitable church? You need to say to yourself, a better church begins with me. You can become more hospitable. Rather than complain about the way Christians sometimes treat each other, you can quietly open your home, share your table, and give relationships a chance to develop. You want a more accepting church? You need to say, a better church begins with me. You can broaden your group of friends, begin to love those people in the church who need your love the most. There is someone in this church who is waiting for you to stop criticizing others and start accepting her or him. And that's where real change begins in the church. A better church begins with you and you and you and you and with anyone who has the advantage that Jesus Christ gives you the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to our advantage. Jesus said so. May God multiply those people throughout his church. Think about that. We need to pray. Why don't you take a moment to pray and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we read in your word these words from the Apostle Paul. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Lord God, 
How rarely we believe that. We accept it, we say it, we read it. But we don't often believe that we're forgiven of our sins. That all those sin debts have been nailed to the cross. Father, I pray we talk this morning about how your Holy Spirit works in our lives, work in our life this morning. Enable us to understand, to believe and obey what your word says. Enable us to trust that our sins truly are forgiven. They're done away with, the debt is canceled, it's nailed to the cross. And Lord, I pray as we come down here to this table, that this would be an acknowledgement, an agreement for us as we come receive the bread and we receive the cup and we pray, our sins are forgiven. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Make that truth real to us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As 